0: This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Brew. It's episode 249 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast and this episode's a product of interesting circumstances back in june when i was out in santa rosa california i met up with andy hooper at seismic brewing to talk primarily about Bring light lager because they had pulled off quite the feat gold medals in the category of world beer cup 2022 gbf 2021 and the california state fair and they did it with a light lager brewed not just with all malt but all craft malt that's california grown and california malted and organic and if a craft brewer can beat the big guys at their own game with a beer made with local organic craft mall. You know I'm interested because I know you are interested. Andy has a long and respected history of brewing, and the conversation you'll hear is both thorough and inspiring. However, at the same time, the ownership of Seismic had been making some moves. And a couple weeks after we recorded the episode, Andy sent out an email to a bunch of us in the industry to inform us that he had resigned because, quote, I realize that I cannot follow the direction that the organization appears to be headed. Unquote. I checked in with Andy to make sure that he was okay with us publishing this conversation prefaced by this update, and he was very supportive of the idea. While he's no longer with Seismic, he's incredibly proud of the work that he's put into the brewery and the beers. You know, he was the the founding brewmaster and designed and built the brewing operation, hired the staff, trained the staff, designed the beers, et cetera, et cetera. And the conversation definitely deserves to be heard. So here it is, Andy Hooper, former room for Seismic Brewing in Santa Rosa, California, who has just joined the Barnum Mechanical team as a process and sales engineer, diving deep into the nuances of light lager. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new microchannel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, Use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day. It's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary true counter pressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute. With less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contactus at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. So Andy, let's talk about uh, your background in brewing. You know, walk me through uh, what got you into craft beer and then into the brewing industry, and uh, what uh, path your career took to get here at uh, to Seismic.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, professional brewing is the uh, the the only thing that I've done in my um, post college career. Um, you know, pro brewing wasn't something that I uh, knew was a, an option available to me while sure. I was in high school and even the, the first part of college. Um, I had an idea that I wanted to do something related to maybe fermentation science. Um, I even did my high school senior project on winemaking, which was pretty cool. I'm not sure that would fly anymore, um, but uh, I mean,
0: this is the region for that.
1: It is, except that I went to high school in uh, in Auburn, California, which is the base of the Red Dirt foothills out there, um, so Placer Nevada County area. Uh, so it was very cool of them to uh, allow me to 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 do that. Um, of course, just like you know anything where you're asking for permission, you have to justify it with, uh, you know, some, some good means. So I had to, uh, justify it under the means of, uh, chemistry, very focused on the chemistry of winemaking. Fast forward to college at, at Cal Poly, you know, um, I'm looking to wrap up my biochem undergrad degree and they wanted to shove me one of two directions. They said, choose a minor. You can choose basically like plastics chemistry, or you can go into, maybe pharmacy or pre-med or whatever. And I really wasn't interested uh, too much in either of those. So, um, I had to do a similar thing to high school. I had to petition the the university, uh, Cal Poly to let me create my own minor. So, um, they let me do that by choosing a bunch of engineering courses and a bunch of uh, other science courses that are relevant to brewing and then creating a 12 week college class, including labs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they threw the book at me a little bit, like, you know, you want to go off <laughs> yeah, course, sure. you better be willing to put in some work. Um, and I did it. And my um, my professor who was overseeing me, uh, Dr. Pediophiestus, I can never pronounce his name, but an amazing person, was, uh, was willing to oversee my project and, um, uh, you know, allowed it, basically. Um, so that set me on the right course to go and continue doing professional brewing, where I then went to UC Davis Master Brewers Program at the extension there um, graduated in, uh, Oh nine from that. And, uh, immediately started on, um, my career at Anderson Valley brewing. They, they got me in the uh, fall of 2009. And then, uh, you, you stuck
0: around there for quite a while.
1: That was a, that was a really interesting experience. I was there for six years and I learned so much. Um,
0: it's a it's a, it's a unique place. I shouldn't call it strange. I stopped through there. I was out here. Was it, I guess it was last summer as a matter of fact. And, uh, um, went up from, from Windsor up to Mendocino to do a podcast with Ken Grossman. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, you know, you drive right by it on the way. So on the way back, I popped in and uh, grabbed a beer and there's a whole concert festival going on out there. And it was really the hub of the, of the, you know, social scene.
1: You were right. The first
0: time it's strange. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. There's no getting around it. Sure. Boonville is a, a weird, small town, weird place. very small town. It is uh, about a thousand people. Um, and when they do the beer fest out there, it turns into 10,000 people. Right. Um, so and you
0: have to camp because there's no place, nowhere else to stay out there right. for it.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, it is a bizarre place. And I, I learned a lot, not because they're like a, a beacon of brewing profession, uh, or anything like that, but because so much about that facility was wonky, just, hmm. I couldn't even begin to describe all the, all the weird things that we had to encounter and, and deal with on a regular basis. But, um, I started in 2009. And was responding to a job wanted ad for the lab, which was what I felt most qualified to do, you know, with my science background. Um, what they didn't tell me is that the previous lab guy was quitting on short notice. And uh, the lab didn't just do beer quality, it was also, by the way, you do research and development, you do brewing, you manage the wastewater system. Um, safety, like basically, (laughs) you know, all the stuff that nobody really wanted to do. Um, so the wastewater system is out of compliance. We're getting notices from the city that, you know, things need to be brought back in order and brought under permit immediately or else. Um, so Yeah, I walked into a bit of a hailstorm, and uh, I mean,
0: for somebody fresh out of college, I mean, you know, of course you're you're geared up to handle that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I remember getting um, uh, a binder that had a whole bunch of previous emails and information about the wastewater system and about compliance and all these things that the GM at the time, you know, set in my hands and you know said, "This is your homework." Um, And we're going back to uh, uh, to my truck, my camper. The first three months I worked there, I was living in the back of my truck in the barn. Um, there was nowhere to rent. Right. Um, So I remember going back to my truck and sitting in the little camper thing in the, in the bed of the truck and flipping through this stuff and just having a major panic attack. (laughs) Like it just couldn't possibly be that they're going to try to put all this stuff on me, but you know what, it all turned out great um, because every challenge was an opportunity to learn something. So over the course of my six years there, it went, you know, lab and wastewater R&D brewing. And then very quickly I was know, director of ops, plant manager. And, um, I had a whole bunch of things under my, um, under my purview that I didn't necessarily, you know, get in the business to do. I'm supervising, um, you know, cleaning staff and, you know, trying to, you know, do really, really big expansion projects that, uh, that we were trying to do to take that brewery from 20 something thousand barrels to Hmm. 55,000 barrels in, in the time that I was there. Um, but again, all the chaos that was, that was thrown at me during that time. Um, I just kind of had to do it and I'm glad for the opportunity because I learned a heck of a lot and, and how to get some of those things done. Didn't kill you. just made you stronger. Exactly. Well, I mean, maybe killed me a little bit. could have, could have taken a few years (laughs) off my life, but that's TBD. So, uh, then what brought you down
0: here to Santa Rosa?
1: Yeah. So I was approached in, um, summer 2015, uh, by Chris Jackson. Um, we made introduction because our wives uh, used to know each other in college, um, so uh, introductions were made. This is
0: Chris Jackson of the Kendall Jackson kind of extended family of of winemakers.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I had no idea who who he was, or frankly, what um, what any of their wine brands were about. I really wasn't. Uh, much into the, uh, the retail world of wine and just wasn't really familiar. So, um, we made introductions and, and as he explained to me, his goal was to, uh, build a brewery somewhere again, TBD, not necessarily even Santa Rosa at that point, but want to build a brewery, get into the industry and we want to have a focus on, uh, sustainability. Great. Hmm. Um, and there weren't a whole lot of other criteria at that point. So it was the course of months of conversation, um, where I was, being, uh, being asked to you know well how would you approach building a sustainable brewery? okay well, these are the things that I would do having a heavily wastewater uh, rich background um, I thought that uh, doing a wastewater recovery or reclamation brewery would be uh, I mean fantastic something I really wanted to do from my days at Anderson Valley actually yeah and just to dive in that a little bit deeper because this is important context, Anderson Valley, is, you know, got to its peak of fifty-five, almost sixty thousand barrels, and their source of water is wells. So, there during the great drought of two thousand fourteen, there were many, many times where we ran out of water and we'd have to shutter the doors and send people home and oh, wait until there's water again, yeah. right? Um, and then we also treated our own wastewater, so we'd send it to the ponds, which, of course, were not the most effective means of treatment, but that's what we had. And uh, it always struck me as you can save a bunch of water in the brewery by not using it as much, that's fine. And we were doing the best that we could in that regard. We had a water, water ratio at about four to one. Not bad, um, but it always occurred to me like we're, we're discharging all this water onto the ground. Um, isn't there a way that we can reach out to a company who can design something to, to reclaim it for us? Um, and it was always a little bit out of reach too expensive or not of interest to ownership. Um, so in starting Seismic, that was an opportunity, a greenfield project. You start from scratch. Mm-hmm. What if we put in the reclamation stuff from day one, and what Which is would that not
0: do? a typical investor pitch? You know, for a, a startup brewery at all.
1: Exactly, exactly, and it's extremely situationally dependent. But we were drawing upon lessons from other breweries that got uh, stuck. They got they ran into issues with wastewater being extremely costly to treat, um, and we thought that we could uh, we could get around a lot of uh, costs and complications by just, you know, taking ownership of our own destiny, so to speak, you know, that we, if we take it upon ourselves to treat all of our own waste and reclaim it, um, then we we're not going to be kind of at the whim of, you know, charges from the municipality and water shortages, things like that. Um, And actually that was a pretty good experience. It it turned out the city of Santa Rosa was really willing to work with us. Uh, They saw how auspicious the, the project was. And they were willing to waive certain fees, um, which were quite significant. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we don't really have a a sewer bill to to speak of. You know, a brewery our size should expect to pay tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in in sewer fees, and we don't. Um, So that was, I mean, that was huge. But again, we had to explain this is untested technology. So. Bear with us. So
0: that was how Chris lured you away with a promise of a wastewater reclamation system that you could build from the ground up. I, I mean, Andy, that's pretty sexy, right there. <clears throat>
1: um, yeah, the wastewater—it uh, was definitely a huge uh, sure, attraction, yeah. but also the ability to build a fully, you know, right, sustainable right. facility as well.
0: I joke about that, but we've had, I've, we've had great conversations on the podcast with folks like Urbane uh, from Stroysa. They've got they're down to a one and a half to one water usage ratio with awesome. a you know heavy reclamation project. I mean, I've talked, I've you know visited the Alchemist with their uh, bioreactor, talked to Sean Lawson about their uh, you know kind of pond bio system. For uh, you know, it, the more you talk to brewers, the more you realize that that you know cleaning effluent out of the the waste stream and and being as efficient as you can with this is is not just a good thing; it's kind of a, a moral responsibility that we all face here in an industry that is so water intensive.
1: Yep. Yep. And I would maybe even add another layer to that, that, um, the, the costs of operating a business are such that some of these technologies are now requisite just to stay afloat. Um, people aren't looking at sustainable tech as like a feel good or a marketing initiative anymore. They're looking at it because it makes good business sense. It's a way to save money or secure, you know, uh, your, your liabilities and reduce them.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, let's talk about the kind of creative process as you decide, as you all decide to build seismic, of course you have to come up with the beers you're going to make you, you already know how you, you know, the, some of the technical kind of groundwork that you want to lay for us. So let's talk then about some of that creative process. But before we do that, looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough, think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with old orchards, craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com brewer. Also, hey Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, will soon be offering their dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100-gram packaging. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. So it's interesting that Chris might say, hey, we want to build a brewery based on sustainability, not say, hey, I've got this great idea for a beer and we just want to build a brewery in order to make it because we think this product is going to be a hit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to come at it from that. How do we build a good business first and then we will iterate until we find the right products that hit. Talk to me about that kind of creative and ideation process.
1: Yeah. Um, So it wasn't just, you know, a wastewater concept. It was really let's start with a mission statement first mission statement was sustainable brewing. Right. Um, and then on top of that, we want to be able to, you know, build a company where people are going to be able to, you know, create families and prosper and all that kind of stuff. We want to be, you know, members of our community. That's the mission in the mission statement. That's great. That's yeah. You know, the goal is designing
0: a business that can sustain the lifestyles and, and support the people that work for it. It's a great way to approach this.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, admittedly, pretty pretty precocious because the brewing industry has been around for a while. There's been lots and lots of other people who have started businesses and had either success or failure. Um, and so to to come in and open a place right after the the big peak of craft brewing and think that we're gonna do it all better than everyone else is um, it's a hell of a statement, right? Um, so the thing that got dumped in my lap. And I'm glad for it. Is the facility and the uh, you know the care of the uh, production team, um, and this this innovation in terms of sustainability and, and trying to bring beers to the table that are somehow iterative, new. Um, so I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish in these last six and a half, seven years. Sure.
0: So how did you start out with that? I mean, what uh, what did that kind of creative evolution process behind product look like? Um, you know, clearly you all have found some success and awards with light lager. Um, you know, was that part of the, the core plan, you know, you coming out of Anderson Valley, you'd made everything from lots and lots of gozas and, you know, beers all over the map to you know, anyway, any, any number of things, how did you decide what, uh, the seismic brand was going to be about?
1: Yeah, uh, initially it was really refreshing to be able to look at recipe development from uh, you know from a brewer's lens as opposed to say a marketing lens. Instead of looking at uh, where is there a gap to fill in what's available at retail, it was uh, how can we go you know tell a tell a story about the beer through the you know the ingredients and all that kind of stuff. So initially we were looking at things like um, you know the Namazu Pale Ale was the was the flagship initially. And that was an effort to make a sub 5% alcohol session IPA kind of thing. Um, So trying to touch upon big hop profile and flavor, but, you know, reduce the alcohol a little bit. Um, And we had some good success for that uh, with that for a number of years until we launched an IPA and it cannibalized it a little bit. Um, So, you know, our Namazoo pale ale kind of fell off a little bit. And then that was the rise of uh, the IPA. And it wasn't really until um, I started exploring around sources of California malt that things really shifted. Um, so Admiral Maltings, uh, i had heard Ron Silverstein speak at conferences and stuff and started a dialogue with him. And I also met um, James Mahon from Grizzly Malt, who's actually right here in Rohnert Park. And these guys are simultaneously driving full steam ahead at creating California-based you know, malted barley and wheat and other products. Uh, and it was just, a, it was mind blown to me. Like these guys are doing something I would have never considered doing, you know, malt and, and cereal grains that you use in brewing are just commercialized. You pick up the phone, you order them. And I'd never thought to ask what field is this grown in or what farming practices used or how is it malted? How is it kilned, uh, any of those things until, you know, talking to those two guys, uh, that was transformative. So we started with, uh, couple of experiments on a pilot system with these different malts and um, it it dawned on me that it's a little bit too easy to dump an array of uh, of ingredients into a beer and kind of lose the point or the focus Um, so that was the shift to I guess what you'd call minimalist brewing let's use a single malt uh, and maybe a single hop and let's see what that expression is. Now, it's not a new idea. People have been making sure, smash sure. beers forever, but this was really a focus on ingredient and what the ingredient can do, uh, for, for the recipe. And out of that came things like our alluvium pilsner, which is hundred percent California, uh, malt. And then eventually tremor California, which, um, is of course our light lager, which has just recently take, taken a few awards. Um, and that, that really changed the portfolio and the thinking altogether. Um, Let's really try to focus on sourcing ingredients and, you know, going and, and having a tight relationship with the maltsters and the farmers. That's both for malt and for hops as much as we can.
0: Talk to me about this, uh, Pilsner and light lager. Yeah. You know, are, are these now both, uh, hundred percent, uh, craft malt beers?
1: Correct. Yeah, they are. And alluvium has been since, um, ooh, early 2018, um,
0: Are you working with, uh, you know, a a stock malt from maltsters on this, or have you worked with them to kind of, uh, customize the malting process to produce a malt that will specifically work with, uh, you know, the beer design itself?
1: A little bit of both. Um, initially, you know, who am I to walk into uh, admiral or to grizzly and say, Hey, you're, you know, you're doing this differently than I would like or whatever. Um, you know, we did a bunch of trial brewing with, uh, with their respective malts. Um, and then uh, when we started brewing uh, Tremor, California with the, the Admiral malts, um, they were actually willing to, you know, to modify their process a little bit. Um, my feedback to them uh, on the, the malt that we were initially using, the Feldbloom malt uh, for both our um, Pilsner and for our light lager, was that, you know, I love the profile and it's clean, it's consistent and all that kind of stuff. It's just a hair too dark. Um, and we're picking up just a little bit more of the toasted malt flavor than we would like to make these lighter style beers. We want them to be not flavorless and neutral, but you want them to be resoundingly clean. Um, and it was awesome to see, you know, their response to that was just like, yep, okay, let's do it. There's no question. It's like, absolutely, we're going to try it and we'll see what you think. And it's been a conversation that I never thought in my brewing career I'd be able to, to you know, pick up the phone and call a malting partner and, and have a conversation about the ingredients.
0: That's interesting. And so, you know, you're talking about beer styles that need to express some malt character, but also not scream too loud. Mm-hmm. You know, talk to me about how you think about balancing that malt flavor because clearly that flavor is important. Otherwise you wouldn't be spending what you're spending on craft malts to feed this. And that's a significant thing. Given the scale of some of these beers, you are primarily a production brewery mm-hmm. uh, with a small tap room, but distribution is, is the, the primary goal here. Um, you know, you're not producing, this is not a small one-off batch just to, just to feed a tap room. These are mm-hmm. some significant brands that are the see distribution over a you know fairly wide range.
1: Yeah. And maybe this uh, product development process that, you know, the, the thinking, the mentality was somewhat reactive because uh, let's rewind to maybe, you know, 2010. Uh, Amber Ale is still king. Technically, I think mm-hmm. by volume sales, people are still drinking maltier beers. IPA is is not yet, you know, the, the clearly dominant thing out there. Um, but it's on the rise and people are starting to get a little bit out of hand if you, if you ask me, right? Sure. Um, let's throw 150 IBUs, which isn't even technically possible, you know, like let's theoretical IBUs. Yeah. 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 Uh, Miscalculated IBUs. Um, and people are throwing everything in the book, you know, blends of five, six different hops and seven or eight different malts. And the beer doesn't really resemble the beer that your, your, maybe your daddy or grandpa drank anymore, which is both good and bad. Um, but the arc of that innovation kind of took a weird turn, and it became almost like extremist brewing, just just making stuff which tells more of a marketing story than it is good to drink, um, too in many, my Too opinion.
0: many people ran, read Randy Mosher's Radical Brewing book, and <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. just kidding, Randy. <laughs>
1: no, and that's, uh, you know, that's, sure, that's sure. me, There's a place me for that. too.
0: There's a place for that, obviously, yeah.
1: Of course. Um, you know, when I was home brewing in, in college, um, I'd have my complete joy of home brewing mm-hmm. book, um, you know the same one that I think um, I had a copy that my dad gave me, so I think his copy is from the you know mid to late '80s or something like that. And there's notes in the margins and stuff from when he was homebrewing. And you know we'd we'd love to crack that thing open and read these just silly recipes and backstories that, that Charlie would put in there. They're entertaining and they make you want to try to innovate in kind of interesting ways. You know like the the famous example is the goat scrotum ale. You know, uh, and my roommate and I brewed that and we had a bunch of laughs about it. And, um, you know, I'm sure my roommate Greg still has a bottle somewhere. Now, was that commercially viable or even qualitatively good beer? Maybe, maybe not. Um, But in my opinion, it, it was time to step away from stuff like that and start focusing on a little bit more minimalist, clean, process driven beers. You know, what if you get everything perfect? What if you get yeast handling and aeration and milling and DO pickup and everything just falls right in line. What would the ingredients say if they could speak? And that's, that's what we were going for.
0: Then, you know, how did you start to like define that? You know, do you, did you build up, you know, how did the picture for what that was going to be then develop and how did you, how did you know what you were pushing towards and what was then taking you in in the direction that you didn't want to be going in as you, you know, kept iterating on some, on these loggers.
1: Well, the funny one I'll, I'll tell you about is tremor because before tremor was marketed as, as is um, it was being brewed solely for our employees' consumption. What we'd have to that's do. brewer's beer. Yeah. That's brewer's beer. Heck yeah. Right. Um, you know, much in the same way that a chef doesn't get off a, a, you know, 10 hour shift and go home and have like a deconstructed lobster foam sandwich or whatever. Sure, uh, Brewers don't, strictly go home and have barrel aged peach sours. And I mean, some of you do obviously and and good on you, but I know I would go home and I'd be reaching for a pilsner um, and more than a time or two, a a domestic macro lager. Um, It's funny how trendy macro lager is amongst
0: some uh, of the more respected craft brewers out there.
1: It is. And I think you touched upon some, mine was PBR, by the way. Um, You touched on something because it, it, is, it is trendy, but also it, it speaks volumes if a whole bunch of brewers are getting, you know, done with work or on their free time or whatever, or while they're driving a forklift. I don't know. I don't run your safety program. Um, and they're reaching for light lagers. It's not necessarily that it's just like a hipster trend. It could also be because that style of beer is inherently just delicious.
0: I think there's two things. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us who are in this world of beer, we like to drink a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to not stop drinking. And uh, if you drink a lot higher ABV beers that are more flavorful, you're going to drink less of it. And then I think the other, you know, the other big piece that drives that is that, uh, you know, you forget the beers work, right? I mean, we you got to work. I'm working right now. You're working right now. You were talking about beer. It's great work. Mm-hmm. It's exciting to be able to work in this but I also like to not work when I'm not at work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's something I think about that where, you know, I think everyone feels the license to not have to, um, hyper evaluate something if it's that familiar and it's that, uh, that simple and straightforward. And so you can enjoy just drinking beer without having to think about the beer itself.
1: Yeah. Well, let's also like look at what is it that people in in craft beer whether they're working in it or just consuming it what is it that they dislike about macros and it's always been a really adversarial relationship right the things that we don't like about the beer uh, are mostly not to do with the liquid so much sure. as the companies and the practices and all the competition and the you know stuff like that um, and some of these companies do engage in genuinely terrible business uh, practices
0: mm-hmm. at a high level. Most, most of the operation of their business are great, but then, you know, they fund the lobbyists for uh, just, you know, just distributor lobbies that uh, work against the interests of craft brewers at, at state levels. And, uh, you know, that's just terrible stuff. So that is what it is.
1: Yeah. Be right. The beers themselves. I mean,
0: nothing wrong with those beers.
1: Right. Um, And maybe you're not into adjuncts and things like that. And I understand that as well, which is why this is kind of leading to the crescendo, the aha moment. What if craft could take light lager back? What if we could repossess ownership? There's the segue. Yep. Damn it, Andy, that was great. (laughs) So what if, what if we could take all the things that are objectionable about the beer that you secretly love and that you have to drink in the closet because you're a craft brewer and you're not supposed to be drinking light lager? What if we could take all those things away and it could be, a locally sourced, you know, locally owned, uh, all the other statements that you can make about it. The fact that ours happens to be, you know, organic in California, malted and all that kind of stuff. Uh, no adjuncts, all malt, you know? So what if that existed? Wouldn't it be the easiest yes you've ever said to a beer? Um, and that's where we found success. That's why that brand was launched in the middle of a pandemic and has suddenly become 55%
0: of our portfolio. Well, that was fast. Yeah, it was quick. You also stole some gold medals away from those uh, macro uh, brewers that tended to lock up that light lager category uh, year (laughs) after year. So good for fighting the fight for craft on that. Um, Let's again back up into what it takes to do that. You know, you mentioned this approach to craft malt, and I think it's a crazy awesome one that you are 100% California craft malt in a light lager you know, competing in that kind of category—that's uh, you know, you know. But but then you know, as you work on the rest of of that recipe design, you know, what is, what does that look like? You know, how do you then start to realize this vision for a super clean, super light, super easy to drink, um, but very not distracting light lager? Yeah, I without mean. adjuncts, without a six row, without uh, mm. you know, you know, corn. Uh, without all the other means that uh, you know, generally brewers might use to achieve that kind of lightness.
1: Yeah, I mean, since there's nowhere to um, to hide a flaw, so to speak, in a style like that, um, it, you really go to focus on on process, not so much recipe, because frankly, the recipe is two ingredients. It's you know, it's malt and it's hops. Yeah, um, and then we secondarily start talking about the fact that yeah, there's you know. There's some pH adjustment. There's some yeast management. There's some other things that go into it. But you know, stepping all the way back to ingredient selection, how we mill, how we transfer grist around, how we transfer mash, everything, everything has to be so gentle and so um, uh, direct. I guess I don't know another way to put it. But sure, sure. What's um, that
0: milling process then look like? What do you? What are the parameters that you you, you tightly control for in order to ensure the most gentle handling of that malt? Sure, uh, well, and for- then what happens if it's not handled gently? What do you find? Uh, you know, how does that express in an actual finished beer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if somebody's trying to reverse engineer their own process and think about that, what are some of those flavors that you find from excessively rough malt handling that might mm-hmm. you know, might showcase themselves in the beer?
1: Yeah, um, well, the the milling one, you know, the, the thing that they teach you in. Um, in brewing school, at least at UC Davis is when you ever have a problem, um, blame the maltster. Uh, obviously since we're very <laughs> friendly with our maltster, that's not an option. Yeah. Um, so you have to take it upon yourself to make sure that the, you know, malt is being stored in the correct conditions. It's not picking up moisture, which then can damage friability. And in the milling process it's nothing crazy. It's not like we have a, you know, uh, a some secret crush setting or yeah, anything. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you do have to monitor it constantly. Yeah. Um, so we have a four roll, uh, you know, uh, mill with a sieve separator. It's, it's nothing crazy fancy, but, um, we went through, I don't even know how many thousands of, uh, shaker tests dialing in and trying to find what worked really well to get that, you know, that magic, uh, trade-off of loudering time versus efficiency and, um, uh, and not over sparging monitor pH is on everything. So we monitor, you know, of course mash pH beginning and end, and then the, um, the pH during loudering, which, um, our 60-barrel brew house is a lot of uh, automation. So we have instrumentation, which is very handy in monitoring uh, the real-time Play-Doh runoff as we're collecting wort and the, um, uh, you know, the various qualities there. We also do a, uh, what's a little bit more commonplace now, which is uh, not loudering to hit a kettle full target, but loudering until wort quality drops below an acceptable threshold. So an example would be in the case of Tremor, you're um, you're loudering off and you uh, stop sparging and stop loudering when the uh, collection collected runnings drop below four play-doh the thinking being of course that even though you've done as much as you can in milling and in mashing and in mash transfer to eliminate uh you know the pickup of um anthocyanins and, and and tannins and things like that you still cut the louder early because you know that as the runnings weaken you're it's diminishing games um, in terms of the Play-Doh extract that you're going to get, but you are increasing in things like silica and in polyphenol and that kind of thing. So, you know, you're slightly wasteful in that there's a, a, a marginal amount of extract that you're going to let go down the drain, but you're um, you're ensuring that there aren't other undesirables making it over into the kettle.
0: And again, since you have nowhere to hide, it's these very, very little things that make huge differences down downstream.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the uh, practices like, um, you know, making sure that our hot work is never standing without being actively boiling for, for as long as it, you know, as it should be, you don't want to have a, a really, really long whirlpool stand or a really long heat exchange value because you could just be generating, you know, possibly a DMS, um, precursor. And so attention was paid to all those things in the design of the brew house, which, um, is also a custom brew house for us. Uh, That was a weird crossroads. In um, in early 2016, we were going to shop brew houses. Do we, you know, we call up a place that makes them and we just get something that's been pre-engineered and delivered, or do we try to kind of custom make our own novel brew house around our needs? And we chose the hard route. Um, It's not even necessarily that it was more expensive. You know, they don't have brew houses sitting on a shelf somewhere at a brewery Costco. (laughs) Um, So they have to make it to your specification more or less anyway. Uh, So we figured that was an opportunity to specify vessel dimensions and heating rates, um, how and how quickly things are transferred from vessel to vessel. And um, our, our brew house is pretty unique in that a lot of it was just entirely made to our design. So, um, in the case of the kettle that our kettle has a kettle stack condenser, that's not crazy, uh, rare anymore. Um, there are other people including Russian river who have kettle stack condensers, but it was interesting that we were allowed to go to our brew house manufacturer and say, I, you know, the amount of surface area and steam coverage that you have in this vessel is okay, but would you increase it 30% based on our, our calcs? Um, would you increase the kettle stack condenser to ensure that the, you know, um, it can condense and keep up with the rate of boil that we're choosing in our in our boil kettle, and uh, we were lucky that um, uh, the places that we worked with, you know, Mark's Design and Metalwork and Brent and Browcon and um, and Barnum Mechanical, these these companies who all helped us out along the way, were willing to say yes every time. So we got exactly what we wanted.
0: You know, and you were going about then this custom brew house. Not, I mean, you weren't a lager brewery at the time. No, uh, not was, at all. You were the, an ale brewery making pale ale from the start, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're also having to think about flexibility then in that, you know, that, you know, unlike a more purpose built lager brewery.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad actually that you, uh, that you bring that up because it's other important context to think other breweries have grown from some other position usually before they go and build into a 13 or 14,000 square foot building with a 60 barrel brew house. You normally come from something uh, where you've done, you know, a little bit of homework on what brands you're gonna you're make and how many SKUs you're gonna develop and which things you're gonna package. I had none of those data points. <laughs> sure, sure. None of those design criteria existed. Um, so in designing the brewery, it was really uh, it was a struggle for me to sit down and go, how do I make this, you know, economical so it doesn't end up being like this kind of useless Swiss Army knife brewery, but that we can do as much as we might want to do in the future uh, in this one space. It's really shoehorned in there, um, you know. It it, it the theoretical max capacity is about thirty five thousand barrels, mm. and that's not a very big facility over there. Yeah. But everything is just laid out in a way that, <clears throat> at least in my opinion, uh, is hyper focused on efficiency. Sure, sure. Let's
0: uh, keep on the hot side subject for uh, for this light lager. Sure. But before we do that, the secret is out, and Canada Malting Company's newest malt is here. Introducing Europills, made from the finest overseas low-protein barley available. This malt exudes traditional European Pilsner malt character, highlighted by the biscuity notes which accent the subtle grassy undertones. Europills is available now in limited quantities to select markets, so don't miss out Contact country Malt group to try Euro pills in your next brew. Also arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make arrived a no brainer for your craft business. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo that's arrived. A R R Y V E D dot com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So, yeah, let's talk about that hot side. Uh, you know, are you, what do you, how does bitterness come into play in light lager and what techniques are you using to smooth that out? Obviously, you know, with this, you don't want bitterness. Bitterness has to be there, but it really can't be apparent or, you know, or, or, in front of mind for anybody as they're drinking it it needs to do it, you know play its part be a part of the structure and nothing more um you know how do you how do you achieve that
1: yeah um again i think this is a, a is an essay and just like letting certain ingredients speak and not you know crowding the room so um you know a light lager is about that malt expression and the yeast expression or lack thereof frankly um uh, the 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 fermentation, which I'm sure we'll get to after this, is oh it, yes we will is um you know it's critical for that to be clean and, and unobtrusive. Uh, the the bitterness um, is just you know between 15 and 20 IBU, usually leaning towards 15 of a uh, of a single varietal of of hop. Um, now when this thing has gone through various iterations um, before it was called Tremor. I remember this was a um, this was just a beer that we brewed for ourselves um, as like yeast propagation basically to keep mm. the yeast healthy, and so we would um, we would brew it and then we would uh, if we had a spare tank we'd centrifuge some over into a, a vessel and we'd drink it just as employees and um, you know calibrate our canning line you know that was the liquid that we would use to to you know get packaging machinery up and running um, so uh, it's it's about less is more. So um, it was always a variety, a single variety of hop. Now that Tremor is organically certified, that sort of constrains the varieties available to us. Um, so we use uh, organic Eureka now um, because it's uh, in the quantities that we're using. It's, a, it's easy to get a good small charge of hop pellets that, you know, aren't going to deliver a bunch of veggie flavor and all that kind of stuff. They deliver a clean, neutral uh, bitterness that just, Props up the the malt backbone, provides the offset to the malt sweetness that you're looking for, and little else. I mean, you really you know, aren't supposed to detect hoppiness, citrusy, essential oil. Right. None of that is appropriate in that beer. So single addition of of hops uh, at the beginning of the boil just to do and it's it.
0: and it's pelletized hops. It's not a like a flowable hop product.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of where I draw the line. Mm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the flowable hop products or anything, but a lot of the time they're designed for um, for utility, you know, um, to gain efficiency or things like that. It's not really necessary when you're putting a handful of pounds of hops, you know, into a into a sixty barrel kettle. Um, and actually, I kind of I also uh, believe in in the fact that the there's more going on than just a summarization, right? There's some hop chemistry going on, which, aids in hot break and eventually cold break um, and maybe the polyphenol content from in the, in the hops providing a little bit of a clarifying effect. Um, so I didn't want to get too uh, too contemporary, too modern with the, the things that are going into this. And, you know, the organic program also won't let us. Remember, we're not allowed to use a, a lot of other adjuncts, acidifiers, things like that. It has to be organic certified malt, organic certified hops, organically certified yeast um, and water. And that, that's it they really don't allow much else.
0: So, uh, you know, fast pellet addition at the very start of the boil yep. and you just ride it right through.
1: Mm-hmm. Simple enough. It's, it's very, very simple. Yeah. Um, it's really more about, um, about the process and everything. You know, if, if we were just to to say, Hey, here is the, here's the recipe for, for tremor, it'd be underwhelming. It's a It's a malt. Sure, you know, it's, a, sure. it's a hop. Anybody can go and take those two things that are readily available and combine them and uh, you'll probably come up with a dozen different iterations of the same beer. You know, it's the, it's the way that we brew the beer that makes it a, a unique, you know, a, whatever the thing is, the magic thing that, that we're right, doing. Right, right. Um, I think it's honestly a combination of all the process steps that we do. Sure.
0: Yeah. Is there anything to the, to your boil um, and the rest of that hot side process that uh, you know,
1: it helps achieve
0: that kind of gentle approach?
1: Nothing mysterious or magical. No, it's hmm. a, it's a, it's a, it's a work kettle. Um, it's got a really cool <laughs> oversized Calandria, yeah. you know, um, we run it on uh, 25 pounds of steam ish between 20 and 25 pounds of steam, which ends up being, oh, I don't know, three, what was that? 315, 330 degrees. Right. So if you were to try to take uh, our recipe and go brew it on say a direct fire kettle, you'd probably get more color and flavor pickup and stuff um if you were to try to brew it in a, an externally fired calandria you know at a, a much much larger brewery maybe it would taste a little bit different too um no ours is just a an internal steam-fired calandria with a lower pressure lower heat input um to try to minimize uh you know not caramelization but Maillard reaction things like that sure um, and then the uh, the kettle stack condenser is. You could, you could maybe argue efficiency gains by, especially for a light lager, by saying we're gonna do uh, like a less evaporation rate. So instead of 9% per hour, we could go for four or five, like the big boys do, macros. You could even maybe make an argument for efficiency sake of doing um, you know high gravity brewing and then dilution uh, either of the, uh, the wort or of the finished beer on the way to packaging. Um, and all that is totally valid and it's done by lots of folks. Um, but that just didn't seem the route that we wanted to go. Just very traditional, straight up brewing practices that you'd find in most most regional or small small size breweries.
0: Sure, sure. What's next? Uh, you know, as you move out of hot side and uh, you know, and then start thinking, about, start getting into fermentation.
1: Yeah. So our um, our yeast strain is a uh, is a good one. It's a it's like a German Bach Lager yeast. Hmm. So. Um, a very fast, aggressive fermenter that'll handle high alcohol if you should choose. And we do make a Doppelbach um, with that same yeast strains, amazingly clean. And you get cherry notes from whatever um, fermentation byproduct that it, that it generates. It's really cool. Um, but, but in Tremor, it it will produce very rapidly with very little other things generated uh, cogeners um, during fermentation. So you know, a little bit of diacetyl. I would be suspicious if it didn't. It produces a little bit of diacetyl initially, and then it recovers from that very quickly. So, I mean, it could be seven to 10 days and, and diacetyl has been reduced, uh, which is amazingly fast. Um, and this yeast strain also doesn't produce any um, ovary, apple-y, uh, or estery things, you know, the, the hallmarks of some of our Competition and macro are known for being very appley or very banana forward. Right, right. And this particular strain doesn't do that. It, it's just very neutral and um, uh, and very clean, remarkably clean. Uh, so it's it's enabled us to, to kind of flex our muscles and in, in other things other than light lager. So if we want to do IPLs or so-called cold IPA. <laughs> Um, so-called
0: cold IPA. I'm huh? not a big fan of the Uh-oh. terminology. Uh-oh.
1: We we've been brewing this idea for years and years and years and we just got renamed, which is classic. But anyway, that's, that's for another time. It sounds way better.
0: This it, is a way cold IPA is a way better brand than IPL.
1: Way, way better. I don't, I don't care either way. I, I just make, I do. love hearing
0: it. I mean, <laughs> I've had multiple conversations about this in the last two or three weeks mm-hmm. and uh, all across the map from, um, yeah. Yeah. It was a one brewery and, uh, you know, there were like, you know, there were some brewer folks and they were trying to bait him into talking about it. In fact, it was Eric from cohesion. Uh, we were chatting about that after the after I did a podcast with him in Denver and, uh, you know, and then of course last weekend I was out of Firestone Walker and chatting with, uh, Kevin Davey and, and Evan price of green cheek. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see the the kind of backlash that cold IPA has. And I understand, yes, it's, it's a lager, not a nail. And there's some fundamental problem with that. Anyway, Nonetheless, oh. delicious beers, right? I, I think they taste great, and it's, a, it's nice to see that uh, bringing, you know, that West Coast idea back in such a clean form lets hops express themselves.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think it's just funny. We always get caught up in, uh, in semantics and nomenclature and stuff. You know, we didn't call it hot IPA when we people were doing Kvike, right? That was a missed opportunity. Hmm, Hot IPA sounds (laughs) gross. Right. So no,
0: no, that was not a missed opportunity. That was a thank goodness we didn't go there.
1: This (laughs) is why I don't work in
0: marketing. Cold, cold cells. Anyway, I I digress. Um, So, so this yeast works across all of these other styles that you might, or other, uh, you know, lager iterations that you might play with.
1: Yeah. Um, and so our experience in, in working with it has shown that, um, you know, clean fermentations on a rapid timeline, decent flocculation, but not, you know, anything really wonderful or or, or groundbreaking. Um, but it separates easily and, uh, you know, we give it a, a healthy dose of O2, um, which we monitor pretty, pretty closely. Initially, um, I was shying away from hitting this thing with, 15 to 20 ppm oxygen because i was that might in some people's opinion expedite the fermentation or or maybe a you know help in reliability or something i I don't know all the voodoo that each brewer might have on over aerating but i have a little thing against it so um my my philosophy has kind of always been a part per million o2 per degree plato um just thinking, you know, logically, if the yeast is there at some given prescribed pitching rate, in our case, usually it's 1.5 million per mil per degree Play-Doh, you would also then put in uh, an appropriate amount of O2 to match the the fermentation and the pitching rate. It's there for the sake of yeast sterile synthesis and all that stuff anyway. So why would you not proportion in this, you know, an equivalent amount of O2 to the amount of yeast that you're putting in? That's, there's my soapbox. So we try to target that um, that 10 to 12, never more than 15 ppm, much more closer to, to 10 or 12 ppm of oxygen. Um, and that really prescribed uh, pitching rate every single time. And what that results in is, like I said, that neutral fermentation profile that's clean, it's rapid with not a whole lot of cogen or weird other uh, uh, ester synthesis that you might throw it off uh, on a weird course. Um, and then extended lagering time, I know that there's an instinct, especially among what I might respectfully call the old guard, I guess, um, sure. is to let loggers sit around for months and months because more better. That has not been the case. If anything, the the longer we've you know had contact of uh, of yeast sitting in suspension and on the bottom of these tanks, it really hasn't benefited the beer much. Once it, you know, has gotten to diacetyl reduction and it's had uh, you know, a few days to to clarify go, it's time to get fresh beer off that yeast and get it going. Um, and, uh, you can't shortcut that. You can't, you can't do, you know, seven day logger, like some people would probably like to, but you also don't need to do three month lagering times. It just doesn't, you know, doesn't improve quality at all. So, you know,
0: the, the difference of opinion on this is, is definitely fascinating to me because, you know, over the years of if you got the the ABGB approach, which is you know longer is better. I was just talk, I, I mean, folks. By the time they hear this podcast, will have heard my my uh, podcast with Eric Toft of Shonram, where uh, you know he is definitely a proponent of controlled you know six to eight week lagering times, and don't need anything more than that. You know that uh, anything else after that becomes a declining proposition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so what is the exact, what, you know, what do you tend to, what's the duration look like? And this is all happening in cylinder conicals or are you?
1: Yeah, it's in, it's in CCVs. Um, And it's entirely possible that all of us to some degree are right. Because of course it's recipe dependent, process dependent uh, and yeast strain dependent, all that kind of stuff. So
0: you're right. There's no wrong answers if they work Mm -hmm. for you and all of you all make award winning beers. Mm -hmm. And so you can get to the same place in a lot of different ways, as long as you do it with intention.
1: Yeah. And, and your design intent, you know, if you are trying to create a beer that has more of a yeast forward quality to it, uh, then you may choose to underpitch, overpitch, over pitch, under, over aerate, whatever you're trying to do, sure, or sure. P- pick a strain that has some of those unique qualities. In our case, again, trying to uh, make a, a light lager, we're really showcasing the malt. So hops should be clean and neutral and take a backstage. Same thing with the yeast profile. It should be clean and neutral and take a bit of a backstage. Um, what are, uh, you know, as you go through that
0: fermentation process, you know, I imagine there's a, a range, you know, and each fermentation is going to fall within to some degree. Um, you know, as, as things push towards the edge of a range, you know, how do you uh, course correct or problem solve for those fermentations?
1: You know, we've really been lucky because I with other beers, I have had situations where, you know, we taste it and we go, wow, that's really at the edge of being, you know, not to brand. Mm-hmm. And even other times we've said that's not to brand. We've dumped beer um, and we're absolutely not shy about it. Um, I feel like kind of liberated in that regard because I've been in a position in my career before where you're maybe pressured to say yes to, you know, quality stamp uh, a beer that really shouldn't have been. That's not been the case here. You know, um, 60 barrel batches of pale ale or kolsch or whatever that we just didn't really feel comfortable with. We didn't blend them or try to do anything. They just went down the drain. Hmm. Um, And in a brewery, I don't know who has said this in the past, but someone somewhere in my career said, um, when beer goes down the drain, you'll be surprised to see morale improve. Um, Now, that's obviously a blanket statement. But what I think that person was trying to point out is that um, brewers, I think, feel by and large happier when they get authorization to, to, to dump something they're qualitatively not proud of. Um, well, it's a
0: financial signal that uh, quality really does matter yep and you don't just say the quality matters, but you're also willing to spend the money to make sure that that quality matters
1: yep yeah yeah that's where the rubber meets the road. Uh, but you know luckily with with tremor um, that just it really hasn't ever been the case. There's been very little fluctuation in that beer and maybe that's because you know we were brewing it before it was branded as tremor before it was certified organic before it was even offered for sale anywhere, we were brewing this through, through the years with some regularity. Um, and we were doing that with a safety blanket because it wasn't offered for sale. If that we, uh, you know, played around and experimented with a, with a yeast propagation brew and it, it didn't work out. It was headed for the drain anyway to go feed our wastewater system. Um, so I think some of that iterative process uh, of trial and error was done long before the beer was ever even saleable.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, you know, as you get through lagering and then get into kind of packaging and finishing the beer, uh, any, any practices, uh, you know, that you are gung ho or hardcore about to make sure that this beer gets into package in the best possible form without uh, carrying anything else along with it.
1: Um, Nothing outlandish. Um, We do, um, uh, we do really strive to get the lowest possible DO that we can. And I say that and and I knowing that hundreds, if not thousands, of brewers uh, have come before me saying the exact same thing. Um, and everybody's idea of what that is or what that quality threshold should be varies a bit. Um, and uh, so the keg line, you really don't have to ever worry about a keg line. Um, ironically, in the, some of the rare cases where we would see measurable DO in a bright tank and then we'd send it to the keg line, the packaging would then have zero or less than hmm. in the bright. Um, so keg lines, just they're amazing, amazing pieces of equipment that get good quality beer um, out and they get it to people fresh. Um, my little motto for a very long time has been craft on draft just because some people's packaging lines don't, uh, especially bottling and canning don't hit the quality threshold that I would be comfortable with. Uh, and it is a little bit of a crap shoot when you walk into uh, an account that has bottles, cans, or to-go beer, or whatever, um, you don't know, uh, first of all, how long it's languished in distribution sure, or, sure. or in somebody's, uh, you know, cold box or whatever. Uh, so first and foremost... We yeah. see
0: a wide variety on that. Obviously, uh, with uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you know, brewers send us beer for reviews in each issue and our IPA yeah. issue, which we're sending to press next week, mm-hmm. you know, is a particular one, you know, it's a particular test of packaging quality because those beers will degrade quickly, especially with the presence of alcohol or presence of oxygen. And, uh, you know, certainly because we do it in May, uh, you know, the additional uh, element of potential heat exposure can amplify that whole piece. And so it is, and I think, you know, most brewers realize this when you're entering competitions, it's as much a packaging competition as it is a brewing competition.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Um, one of my more, uh, you know, cynical former employees used to always say, "Packaging is where craft beer goes to die." Um, I love that saying because it keeps you vigilant. You know, you uh, you realize that there is more stacked against you against you uh, once you package the beer than all of the other places that you may have touched the, the product along the way. The milling and the careful handling of the boil, none of that matters as soon as you get it into a can with 80 to 100 TPO. You know, it's just not it's, it's all, it's gone, especially if it's hoppy. And even when it's, um, you know, a beer like, like tremor, which is bomb proof, um, you still have to be quite cautious. If somebody, uh, you know, either a handler, a gatekeeper, as we call them, somebody who works in distribution or retail thinks that it's okay to put it in a sunny window display sure, and let sure. it get hot, cold, hot, cold. It's going to ruin that beer.
0: So what are your parameters then for total package oxygen? What do you find?
1: We would take a, well, every hour, uh, while we're running the can line, we'll we'll pull samples and our lab. will do can seam checks as well as uh, as DO, um, and they'll do three to six every hour. Um, and we are looking for uh, if you take an unshaken can and you just pierce it and let it flow through the machine, uh, just to look at what the the liquid the fill has has picked up. We want to see sub twenty. Um, we don't have a TPO machine, so we do our own calculated TPO, where you then takes cans and shake them for a period of several minutes and then measure them And our calculated tpo we want to see 50 to 80 at the most and most of the time it's significantly less than that now that requires some modifications to the can line um you know some things that uh you just you can't explain sometimes you know you're running the line and you see like one of the heads may decide to fob more than the others and so you got to stop everything bring maintenance in, you know, Yeah. go through, replace heads or investigate seals or you, you name it. Um, but uh, we really, despite the fact that that can cause really long days when something starts to go wrong, it's just not really acceptable to have one can out of 20 or 30 or whatever go out with a, a slightly higher DO. Sure, that. sure. Well, we've been talking about light lager for almost an hour now at yeah, this point, yeah. and
0: uh, um, hey, I don't know how we got there, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean, here we are. We we talked at the the very start, or I teased at the very start that we would at least talk about uh, some hoppy beers too, and and part of this came from uh, you know, conversation I was having with, uh, Vinny Chillerza the you know, yesterday, in fact, when he was mentioning, he was actually the one who connected us and put us together. Yeah. Cause he's like, you really ought to talk to Andy while you're here. Mm-hmm. He's a technical, technically minded brewer. And, uh, of course, you know, he mentioned that you've gotten into some process using nitrogen, uh, with hop cones. Um, and I want to, I want you to tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's with our, um, seasonal, um, fresh hop beer that we do. Yeah. Um, and so years past, we, you know, we'd make a, an annual harvest trip with our team. We'd convoy up to Yakima. Uh, so we'd drive the 12 hours up, sometimes staying in Bend on the way. And we would pick up hops from Yakima and drive them back and we'd brew them. And fresh hop beers ha- kind of have always struck me as being p- pretty good. But I just, man, for the amount of pounds of hops and how fresh they are, it always struck me like they should be uh, a little more potent. And, um, you know, we'd do this at Anderson Valley too. We'd, we'd grow our own hops on the property and we'd brew a bunch of pilot brews and stuff. Um, and I, the first thing that any brewer does in a, in a hop field is you take a hop and you mangle, it. you rip it open with your thumbs or you rub it in your hands and all that kind of stuff. And it was, uh, it was striking to me that we're not doing that when we brew with them. So if we have to break them apart just to smell them, why are we not breaking them apart violently in some way to brew with them as well? Um, and you don't want to shred apart the actual, um, the bract or the, the the strig or any of these like leafy materials. You don't want that, you know, wet chlorophyllic material going into the beer. So how do you bust open these lupulin glands and get to all that stuff without also extracting this kind of funky veggie character? Um, well, liquid nitrogen was the, was the solution. Um, I thought maybe about other means like sending it through a mill, (laughs) and sort of crushing the hops and maybe, you know, exuding the, the stuff in the middle, kind of like a tube of toothpaste. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also kind of damages the, the leaves. So liquid nitrogen really ended up being a, a gamble and a win. It worked last year. Um, we,
0: Oh yeah. Describe this
1: process to me. Yeah. So we, we went and, um, picked hops at crane ranch, which is right over off, uh, Petaluma Hill Boulevard here in, in Santa Rosa. And, uh, Ron crane grows those for us. um, And we pick harvest same day. We bring those hops directly from the, uh, the harvester that they have and bring them into the brewery. And then I rented a doer of liquid nitrogen. And what you do next is you, um, we put these hops into 55 gallon drums with uh, holes drilled in the bottom and uh, you spray liquid nitrogen over the top of the hops until as you're stirring the hops, it goes from feeling like you're stirring grass or veggie to feeling like you're stirring uh, corn cereal, like corn chips, it's crunchy and, mm-hmm. and you can feel and see the, uh, the volume of hops in this drum slowly shrink because it's breaking apart. And, um, then the thing that you're smashing the hops with keeps coming out of the bin completely dusted, just covered in yellow. Um, and it's working. So it's all those lupulin glands, you know, f- freezing and then breaking apart from, you know, being trapped underneath these little leafy p- particles. Um, and you're gaining access to them without ripping apart all the all the leafy material in the process. So uh, we did that times, see, 350-ish pounds or so. So a few, a few barrels where you're just smashing all the hops. Um, and that ended up being a win twofold, right? Not only do you have more access to the lupulin, so you're getting more extraction of all the essential oils and everything. Um, but now you have small particle sizes. And so it's okay to put that material into your kettle. It shouldn't plug drains or pumps or anything like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we did. We put some into the, into the boil to get our bitterness from that. And we put the remainder into our louder ton uh, to use the louder ton as a big hot back, back strainer yeah. basically. Um, and the reason why that we we decided to put some into the kettle is because this whole project uh, thing I call Sonoma estate is that we wanted to do what I think is the first ever beer since maybe the early 1800s that's debatable. Uh, but the first ever beer in modern history where we have taken ingredients, which were grown here, malted here, harvested. I mean, everything from the barley to the malting, the hop growing, the hop processing, everything from within 12 miles of the brewery, which means I can't bitter with hop pellets, right? I have to bitter with some of these fresh hop. And that's a crap shoot Cause I don't have time for an alpha acid analysis to <laughs> sure, come back sure. and calculate how many IBUs there's going to be. Um, so we had to kind of wing it a little bit. The result was this, like hoppy, hellish pilsnery. I mean, very golden lager, you know, um, kind of thing, which was a little bit more bitter than we intended. Just again, because no time to do some kind of rapid alpha analysis and back calculate what it's all happening the same day. Yeah. Um, so we shot from the hip. We uh, put. A third of that batch, about maybe closer to half of that batch, uh, mid fermentation, we uh, pulled it out of the fermenter and put it into um, white wine barrels, and so half of the the batch of beer was fermented in these white wine barrels, and then at the end of all that um, maturation and everything, all the beer got blended back into the the conical into the stainless fermenter, and then centrifuged. Um, so we ended up with you know bright and crisp golden kind of colored lager that had a really interesting, like almost peach mango kind of tropical hop thing going on. Um, Whereas, you know, prior batches were just kind of like eh, indescribably hoppy and a little veggie and, you know, kind of fresh or whatever. This really was nothing like any other fresh hop beer that I've been a part of in the past. And it was just incredibly exciting. Um, We held aside one special wine barrel, which I did not blend into the rest. Uh, and I took that barrel to the tap room and uh, we put a tap in it and we served it out of the barrel. Um, now our tap room, you know, historically because of COVID and fires and all that kind of stuff hasn't been a particularly busy place, but that night uh, we promoted that beer and the fact that you'd be able to drink one liter Steins of this ultra fresh, you know, possibly historic beer. And uh, we had a line wrapping out the door and we we killed that um, 60 gallon barrel in a I think it was an hour and a half or something like that.
0: And for a lager. Yes. A line yep. for
1: lager. Yep. God bless America. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was cool.
0: But I can see the the excitement, especially coming from you know an ingredient uh, approach like you do, to be able to build a beer like that, that is 100% Sonoma County. Um, you know, It's a certain piece of pride, and to make sure that it tastes great and is an interesting, creative project just adds another, another element to that. Yep. That sounds like a great place to wrap this up. GD's microchannel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Fill like a pro with pro can fillers from ProBrew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Nano brewers try fermentous dry ale and lager yeasts. And flexible 100-gram packaging Euro pills from Canada Malting Company. Is made from the finest overseas low-protein barley available. And arrived mobile point-of-sale powers places with personality. Subscribe to our magazine. Let me just say it out there. Go to beerandbring.com, click on that subscribe button, support what we do so we can keep bringing you great content like this. Um, Andy, it's been fantastic talking with you about this. My God, thank you for making a craft American light lager, 100% malt, organic, made with craft malt and knocking off the big guys uh it's consistently now at both world beer cup and gabf with that beer uh, that's quite an accomplishment and uh the whole craft world is cheering for you on that appreciate talking about brewing with you cheers absolutely
1: it's been a pleasure
0: this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.